I really believe that remote working is an operating system, not just a kind of office decision. It means that you need to change almost every single aspect of your kind of people policy, your ways of working, your culture of how to deal with problems and come up with solutions. So some practical examples is from like a kind of people policy perspective, our compensation methodology has to be cross-border. We can't just create a methodology that's based in one place. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Jessica Swain. She is the Chief Operating Officer at a remote video meetings company called Webby. Now, they've been fully remote from the beginning. So we chat about the differences between fully remote and office-based. We talk about her book, Built for People, where she takes a product management view of people ops. And she's got fantastic heritage. Not only is she at Webby, but she's also been Chief People and Operations Advisor for a number of startups across Europe, Group Head of Talent at McCann Worldwide, and VP for People and Talent at Wonderbly. Uh, she's based in New York, and we have an amazing conversation about staff engagement, remuneration, motivation. I think fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hello, my name is Jessica Swan. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of a company called Whereby. We are a fully distributed video communications service. We basically make video APIs. So if you're building a like a mental health app for therapists to speak to their patients and you don't want to go through all of the labor of building video comms into your tool, we will provide that software for you and then you can integrate that into your platform. And we also have a consumer product, kind of like a Zoom equivalent, but I personally think much more beautiful, easier to use. Yeah. And we are a fully distributed team. I've been there for about three years. How big's the team now? About 50 people, but we've gone through highs and lows, as have we all in the last couple of years. And it was it fully remote from day one? Yeah, from remote from inception. So we were one of the companies that people were asking for advice during 2020 because we'd been doing it for about four years, I think, prior to that. Why did you decide to do that in the beginning? Yeah, I think the team at Whereby has always been very good at thinking strategically about the culture they're trying to build in relationship with the products that they're trying to build, right? So we're building a product that our mission is literally to imagine a world where anywhere works. And if that is your company mission and your whole purpose is there to try and enable people to connect across borders and work from anywhere then it seems a little strategically muddy to then say to the team, we need you in an office to do your best work. So 
that was the decision that was made. And then basically everything since then from a kind of policy and culture perspective, practically speaking, has been done to serve that as being something that is possible and works well for us. What shows up as the differences between that and what you might think of as everybody being in an office? I mean, there are obviously lots of differences. Like, I really believe that remote working is an operating system, not just a kind of office decision. It means that you need to change almost every single aspect of your kind of people policy, your ways of working, your culture of how to deal with problems and come up with solutions. So some practical examples is from like a kind of people policy perspective, our compensation methodology has to be cross-border. We can't just create a methodology that's based in one place that would be incongruous, I think, which then requires us to be thinking more globally around emerging markets and how we interact with emerging markets ethically. From a decision-making hierarchy perspective, we have this thing called hours agnostic. We made the decision that Again, if kind of going from first principles thinking here about the strategy, if we are a team that's fully distributed and we can ostensibly work from anywhere, then the times you're working don't actually really matter. Because if someone's working from nine to five, it's not someone else's nine to five. If you're in Ghana, it's not the same nine to five as I am here in New York, right? So then we say, well, we need to have hours agnostic working, which means that people are put in control of their own working hours. Uh, with the expectation that output matters more than input. So all of these things are kind of connected to each other, right? And then that means, from a decision-making perspective, we have to put a lot of trust and accountability in our team to be able to arrange times that they can get together in real time, because of course, it still need to happen, and come up with outcomes of that in a kind of timely manner. So because of that, our team then is given a huge amount of autonomy and freedom, but also really high expectations that they're going to have to be flexible, just like we are flexible as a business. So it's very common that you'll find people having meetings sometimes at six in the morning, not every day. That would be, I think, unre- unreasonable. But if somebody really has to hash something out and somebody else is in a different country, then they'll have to get up at 6 a.m. and make that happen. Sometimes it means that people have to hang on a bit work- longer at work than they'd like to. And sometimes it means that people need to you know, be more elaborate in their pre-read, have to be very diligent about making sure that people come to meetings fully prepared because time is quite valuable if you are working all over the world and people wake up early. So that's meant kind of from a practical perspective in terms of how we operate. There's a lot of kind of frameworks and guidance that we have kind of organically created that help people operate in that environment well, which a lot of those things you just don't really need to do when you're working in an office. There's a natural order of things that emerges from the fact that you're there together every day having discussions. Do you, certainly one of our clients who has been fully remote again from inception, they would say, I guess, that their teams don't look for community in the business. And so it's sort of, sort of, you know, it's come to work to do great work with great people, but the community stuff is all, you know, is by definition outside if people are going to work asynchronously. I think it's different for different people. Some of the team really do have a very strong sense of kind of remote community. Like what something that I've said in the past, and I think I still stand by this, but maybe I'm going to reposition myself during this conversation. But you know, I'm, I'm from Australia and I live in the US and all of my family are in Australia. So basically my relationship that I have with them has been remote. I've had a remote family for the past, what, 10 years, 11 years, but I still have strong relationships with them and a sense of community with them. Uh, I think the same can be true. Not workplaces aren't families and I kind of categorically reject that, but the, the kind of analogy still stands, right? You can have strong relationships with people and a community with people that you want to have a relationship with and community with at work remotely. So that is impossible. But the other thing is, honestly, I think a lot of our team don't get their social energy from their work environment. 
they, like me, like have lunch with my husband or go out to watch a play in the evening. Like that's where I, I, I get that social energy. And I think if you are a person that really needs the community of people around you built from a workplace, then yeah, you're going to find remote working, I think, quite difficult. Do you have a sense of what proportion of the population could work in an organization like yours? Gosh, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I don't know. I think, you know, I, I do see a lot of people, it feels like almost disproportionately high, saying that they want to be able to work fully remotely. I don't think every person that says they want to work fully remotely has the skills or personality necessarily to do it effectively and maybe even do it kind of safely for themselves, if that makes sense. I think sometimes the desire for more flexibility can manifest as the de- desire for like ultimate flexibility. And actually when people are really put in that position, they realize that perhaps it, there's a level of ambiguity that they find really difficult to, to swallow. We've had people leave our team for that purpose and a level of isolation that they find hard as well. In terms of your recruitment, how do you screen for that? Yeah, this is a good question. So we have every single person that it works at Whereby that comes through our recruitment process does a, a paid practical test. We always pay people for their time. And the practical test always has this kind of element of ambiguity baked into it. So a good example is for like our SDRs, right? So our SDRs get given three emails, they're inbound emails, and they have to pick which which is the email that they would want to respond back to if they were in the, the shoes of Whereby. And within all three of those emails, there's reasons that you may or may not choose that as a potential sales qualified lead. But we basically don't give them all of the context that they need to be able to perfectly make a decision. To be honest, there is no real right answer. It's about how you justify it, right? Now, if we find someone's responses back to that piece of work is kind of riddled with self-questioning or they're finding it very difficult to process the level of ambiguity of which they have to make a decision in order to have this role... We will usually test harder on ambiguity later on in the interview process because it's a kind of sign to us. If somebody is, for example, an SDR working by themselves for four hours a day because nobody else is online or people are doing other things, they're going to have to be able to still work through those kind of glass ceilings of ambiguity and make what they think are fully rational decisions. Do you get together at all? as a company? We get together at least twice a year, once all as a company and then another time as teams. So we try to do kind of cross-pollinating teams. So if engineering meetup, we'll try and get some people from like design, for example, to also be there so that we're not just having teams exist in their own ecosystems. And then we also have lots of little kind of places where people work in twos and threes in cities and they meet up fairly regularly. Is that part of your recruitment goal or don't? is that sort of random because you've just hired two people in Sao Paulo or yeah it's just random and in terms of focusing on outputs as opposed to time which I don't think anyone would deliberately say well I just want to have my people in the office eight hours a day but I I would say that I think the you know Gallup suggests something like only 34 percent of organizations people people can actually five out of five answer the question I know what's expected of me every day so whilst most people are in offices. Their knowledge about what a good day looked like is often actually pretty rubbish. So how do you go about nailing down what you have of people so that, you know, their expectations, how have you solved this problem that plagues businesses, whether they're remote or office-based? Yeah. So I think your comment about you haven't necessarily met a manager or founder or whatever that will say, I just want people in the office nine to five. I've definitely heard founders say similar things or CEOs say similar things. Maybe not always with that exact kind of intention is that that proves that they're working, but there has been some kind of shorthand that is like, well, it's easy for me to work out if they are working, if they are present. 
And that to me, I think is probably maybe the, the main thing that we're going to talk about here, which is like, how do you work out if somebody is kind of performing other than just seeing them around? So when I talked about those kind of frameworks and guidance that we have in place, whereby has like a pretty structured approach to both explaining what performance looks like and also then measuring and calibrating performance together as a management team so that we remain on the same page. Uh, we've got a couple of things that we've got to do that. So we have a progression framework, which is like not a new thing to describe. I think every company has some version of this, right? It's like, what do we expect at different layers? Now we've tried to keep ours pretty easy to metabolize. I'm not a huge fan of giant 37 page sheet documents, which have rows and cells of different expectations, depending on lever. And I think that's a bit over the top, to be honest, but we have a quite a simple document. You have three spectrums of responsibility, no matter which level you're in, no matter which role you play in the business, you always have a cultural responsibility. Um, So at the most junior level, that is like contributing positively to the company culture. At the most senior level, it's being an exemplary example of the company culture. It's permeating that through the entire business and having a positive effect in all the conversations which you have. It's helping with executive and VP level recruitment, blah, 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 right? And then you have resourcing and planning responsibilities. And that comes down to setting the roadmap, being able to identify what is an appropriate output metric for the quarter. And for my most junior people, that's just participating and contributing to those conversations. And all the way at the very top, it's being able to set the full year strategic objectives for the entire business in a way that's understandable and repeatable, blah, blah, blah. And the final set of responsibilities that we have are around P&L, basically. So in sales, it would be how much revenue we're responsible for bringing in for finance would be how much revenue we're capable of looking after to a certain degree and how much uh, budget do you have to play with at different levels and you know the way that you resource your team effectively. So we look at those things. We have some pretty clear examples of what behaviors look like that we expect. And we've tried our very best to use both behaviors that are somewhat evidence-based that contribute to company top-line performance. So for example, delivering impact. And then also behaviors that reflective of the kind of company we want to build. So for example, being ethically ambitious is one of our values that we have behaviors set out for. And then we have a little kind of similar to a nine box grid, not exactly the same, but same kind of area. If you're listening, you probably understand what I'm talking about. Ah, just hate nine box grids. Go on, go on. (laughs) It's the same kind of vibe, but yeah, it's a, it's a way to kind of in a very quick snapshot see where you're performing against expectations based on performance. And what we look at is your independent growth. So we say rather than performance, we basically, because of the fact that our team is pretty much autonomous and distributed, in order for you to progress within the organization and do a good job of growing, you can't be expecting your manager to kind of golden hand from the sky, come out and say, you should read this book or you should do this thing. So one of the expectations that we have is that if you do want to grow and you do want to progress, you have to be effective, independent, and consistent in your own growth. And that's one of the things that we measure. That's fab. Just so you know, the nine box grid thing that drives me nuts is that I think it allows managers to avoid a difficult conversation, right? So it's like, they say your performance is not where I wanted to be, but you have potential, which means I can stick you in that box and then not tell you you're below par. That's why it drives me nuts because it's like avoid, it's an avoidance box. I hate the potential axis also. Yes. But the way you've done it with independent growth is, you know, not only can you get people to clearly set expectations, but you can then measure progress as opposed to random potential. Like what does that even mean? Exactly. I'm sure somebody out there has made some 
attempts to define potential and quantitative outputs. I, I, I'm yet to see something that I'm truly convinced by. And I, I do a lot of kind of advisory work on helping companies build some kind of mechanism to measure performance. And pretty much after every workshop I've ever done, even if a founder or a VPHR comes in, absolutely sure they want potential. I've never actually walked out of one of those workshops with them sticking to potential as being the measure. So what do they normally replace that with? So all different things we've got. I've worked with someone recently that is a how and uh, so what you do and how you do it. So it's based on the values behaviors. I've had someone recently, which I thought was really interesting, did the skills you have in your role with the other metric, other matrix being your OKR output. So you may be an incredibly skilled engineer, but if you're not using that to actually produce the outputs that the company requests you'd, or requires, you'd be in the bottom quadrant. So that's an interesting one. Now, I that's this one actually is really tempting for a lot of CEOs. Like, oh yeah, great, I'll pick that one because we're outcomes and I love OKRs. The problem is if you then start connecting that to compensation and you don't have your shit together, excuse my French, for OKRs, your whole company starts getting really upset because they're like, well, you're we're bad at setting OKRs. We never come to fruition on them. They're all have dependencies that we can't control. And now you're telling me that my compensation is not going to go up because my OKR performance wasn't strong enough. So that is a word of warning. I had that conversation with a client this morning. Oh, really? Yes. So it was the better people in their organization end up setting stretch goals mm -hmm. and then they miss them. Yep. And the less good employees pick less difficult OKRs. And their manager lets them get away with it because they know they're not very good. And then when it gets to the end of the year, they look like they've performed better relative to the OKR. But there's no sense of difficulty involved. Yeah. You really have to have checks and balances on that. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think that, you know, pay linked to OKRs can be very problematic. Yeah, I agree. I think pay linked to performance is just, it's a hard knot to untangle. And I think in response to that, a lot of companies are, willfully lazy that's a hot take yeah i think a lot of people will become you know they either look at the problem and, and how difficult it is and say there's no way to do this so instead we're just going to give people raises based on their management managers kind of subjective rating so every manager gets a budget and they just distribute it how they see fit which is to me wild or they go wildly down the other path which becomes like we will set your okrs and then we will give you a conversation outcome on that despite any kind of checks and balances that need to be in place and they become like overly draconian with how they connect the two things. But I think there is a middle ground that actually could work. Or just, I mean, I, I look at where most organizations pay salespeople commission. And I think, okay, if, if this is entirely transactional, okay, that makes sense. The evidence suggests that people might work harder if it's piecework, or they might work more consistently. But the evidence suggests if you're doing cognitive work, which is difficult, like consultative sales, then paying commission has no impact and might well have negative impact on performance. And yet, when you say that to sales leaders, they just go, uh, but everybody does it. It's that sort of willful neglect thing. Yeah, it, it, I think especially with the OKRs, like the majority of companies' OKRs are run on a quarterly basis. I've seen some on terms, like three times a year rather than quarterly. But if you're assessing people based on their OKR output for the quarter, then what that kind of leads to is a tendency towards shorter term thinking that I think you particularly want from your most senior folks. So I think there are a couple of shortfalls in being like in just completely numerical and it's just based on quarterly business performance. And then I also, you know, and I actually, you know, an extreme version of this, um, and it may seem a little silly, is like in Amazon warehouses, performance is linked purely to these quantitative outputs. So like how many boxes you pack, how many hours you're standing. And of course, what you see in that circumstance 
is this very widely criticized position that what that ends up happening is people feel like human capital. They, you know, can't have bathroom breaks. They feel entirely pressurized because, of course, just your quantitative outputs is not actually a reflection of your value to a business. So you have to be more nuanced, but I don't think you have to be completely nuanced and just say, managers decide we can't manage this. In terms of calibrating, particularly across different managers, how do you solve that problem? I've got a bit of bee in my bonnet about calibration at the moment. <laughs> I like. I think calibration is in, like completely necessary, and I'll tell you the whole process of how I, we do it at Whereby and how I think you know it, it could or should be done. No matter which way I describe it, it's massively laborious and takes a lot of energy and time from every single level of your team. And I don't think that feels sustainable either. So I accept that criticism. So the way that we do it is we we do it in tiers of management. We try to do it a little bit cross-functionally. So product and engineering will be together. Marketing and sales will be together, for example. Each manager needs to submit their proposed ratings for their team in that kind of grid that I described before. So for example, someone would be, if they're exceeding expectations, they're a D or an E. And if they are growing at a rate that is unexpected or above our expectations, they would be um, a one or two, right? So someone's a D1. So then a manager would, would put their ratings in, they come to a meeting, and they're expected to have evidence to back that up based in the documentation that we use to describe that performance, right? Now, managers always chair that meeting. HR does not chair the meeting. That's a very important step. We wanted to make sure that managers feel like they own it. So the management chair responsibility kind of moves around. And what happens is we start with usually the outliers. So we'll start with people with the highest performance where there's like very, it's a, there's a lower chance of it being controversial. So most people will kind of agree on very strong performance, like obvious overperformance is kind of tends to be more agreeable. And then in that case, we have a nice, like almost like a litmus test to move on from, right? And then we'll usually start on the other end of the outliers. So who are the people that are very clear underperformance? Do we seem to agree with that evidence that's presented? And then we start looking at these funny bubble populations, which is these places where Managers tend to put people when they don't really feel like they're making a decision. So that's like just on the cusp of expectations or just just underperforming. And we start really interrogating them and asking questions about performance, asking questions about the evidence. Now, one of the key kind of golden rules of our calibration is we are not there to move people in the framework. We are there to guide managers to better understand the framework together collectively. So if somebody doesn't have the you know requisite evidence to prove someone's a high performer, we don't say, well, this person's clearly not a high performer. We say either you need more evidence or perhaps you don't understand what a high performer looks like, in which case let's describe it to you with another person. Does that match what you expect? That's I, I like the context for that. I think that's important. A, that it's not HR's role. It's about continuous education. And then the whole process is about continuous education. Do you have some goals about... I suppose when I think about A players, my definition is top 10% of available talent for a given job in a given location at a given salary. Do you pay the same irrespective of where people are globally? Do you just have one salary or do you do you pay do you pay based on tiers of cities or something? So we have uh, our conversation philosophy is public. So you can go Google it if, you, if you'd like to, if you're listening out there, because I'm not great at describing like Excel spreadsheets. But basically we have two regions in which we have pay bands. The US, everyone's based out of Austin salary information, and then London is the rest of the world. So essentially everyone except for the US, and of course the historical reason for that is that US salaries are just so different. 
And then also the way that US benefits are structured and social security and everything else. I understand how there's a balance there and the rest of the team has, you know, agrees with that broadly as far as I'm aware. Then what we do is we don't, we have a salary per level per function. And if you're not in that kind of functional level that's published to the company, because all of the salary information is public, not individuals, but all of our frameworks. Do you know who, which individuals are in which band? Yes, everyone is able to work that out. Yeah, that's that's public information. So you could work out. So that's pretty close to total transparency. Yeah, pretty close. But what we do is we don't have a top band. We only have a bottom band. So we will hire, if we publish a role, we say the minimum salary you'll receive is, say, if you're a account executive, it's 55,000 pounds or something like that. I think it will be 48 or 52 or something. But anyway, 55,000 pounds. Now, if we advertise that out to the world, we will say that that's our starting salary and have a discussion with us. Now, one of the things is we do not negotiate. So as we go through the recruitment process, the manager does have a 10% discretion that they can move within. Now, that 10% discretion is there to capture things like everyone else in the team actually is already paid slightly higher than that because there has been some kind of performance change that's happened or inflationary changes that have happened. Or if the individual has a very specific experience that actually is more than the rest of the people in the team in a certain way. So if somebody has is an engineer with a design background, it doesn't make sense for us to pay them the exact same as the engineers if we're also going to ask them to do some design work. And the manager can just make that decision independently. Now, of course, it's checked retrospectively. And often managers will still ask because they just want to make sure that they're doing the right thing. But they have that 10% discretion to move within. And we allow that because we do salary changes multiple times throughout the year. So if there ever is something lumpy that happens, we always correct it. And that's something that the team is very used to. Now, if someone wants a salary more than 10% above that threshold, we do have circumstances in which we've done it. So there have been times where somebody has, for example, come from a competitor where their experience is so incredibly valuable that it makes sense for us to move out of that standard band. Or if someone's genuinely more senior than the role that we were originally looking to hire and they're almost on the cusp of the next level, yada, 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 right? But we have that documented, saved in people's um, profile and their HR system, and it's all kind of checkable. And then internally, we kind of have the same process, right? So we do salary changes several times through the year, at least twice, often three times. Now, we don't look at every single person and change every single person three times a year, but we will review compensation across the board, right? So we make sure that there are no outliers, no lumpy historical things that have kind of come up again. And very often people will get a salary change when they didn't even expect one. It would just be, hey, we brought in a new recruit into the team. We're bringing up your salary to match them because we think actually your experience at this point is equivalent to theirs. And can individual employees request a salary increase? Yes. So individual employees can request a salary increase between May and September. And the reason we do May and September is because we do a change for everybody in the entire company in March. And then we do another change where we look at everyone in the company in November. So managers or individuals can say, raise their hand and say, hey, I think I'm ready for a salary review. And then their data is kind of recalibrated in a baby calibration. And if we agree that they're at the performance expectations that match the ones that we put out in the previous quarter, we change their salary accordingly. And that's all pre-budgeted and forecast at the beginning of the year. Maybe it's different remote versus in the office, but it means that if you feel as though you've made progress, you're not waiting on your manager to... Exactly. Yeah. And that's part of this whole accountability thing, right? If we, we kind of, when we went through and created the process, it came out that if we're expecting people to be able to be independent in exercising their growth, then blocking them from being able to raise their hand and say, I'm ready for a promotion seems incongruous. 
Um, so we had to allow that. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, people probably use it three or four times a year. And very often people are genuinely ready to have that promotion. Can you tell me what your staff churn is annually? Very, very, very low. We have almost no regrettable attrition. Your book built for people where you lay out the your hypothesis that people operations should be more like product management. Explain why you think that's true and like and therefore why people are getting it wrong, as opposed to you know, catching people doing the wrong thing. This is about building, deliberately engineering somewhere where great people will love to be. Yeah, I think that's kind of broad. Well, great people versus great people for you, I think is probably the main difference, right? So like, I think every company is building three products. You have the product you're selling to your customers. So Harry's Razors is selling razors, whereby selling video communications, right? And we have a whole team and a, a mechanism set up to kind of serve those customers and to increase our customer why, to increase our lifetime value and a bunch of these metrics that we look at constantly in the commercial teams that we have in our, in our business. The second product you're building is your company as a financial instrument. And generally the exec team are building that, right? So I think it's pretty much agreed that the better quality financial instrument you are, the better quality investment you can get, the better quality investment, the better product is a very kind of virtuous cycle. And that is itself a product that you're trying to sell to investors. Just ask anyone that's ever done an investment round and you, you are just genuinely pitching your company as a product just as much as you're pitching your company as an investment. And then the final product you're building is your experience you're selling to your employees. So I analogize your employees as being customers to a subscription product where every month they are consciously or subconsciously deciding to continue that subscription until the day that they decide they would like to churn, they hand in their resignation, and then they leave your team. So if you treat your employees or your team like customers, and you think about the funnel and the journey and the metrics and the outputs in the same way, you're able to think, I think, a bit more commercially as a people leader, because you're no longer saying, we're here to facilitate people having lovely times. No, no, you're here to facilitate a higher employee lifetime value to acquisition cost ratio. It sounds a little non-personal when you describe it like that. And actually, there's a whole, there's a lot in the book that's very nice, but that's basically what your job is there to do. It's interesting because we had a, I had a guest on a little while ago from Harvard called Felix Oberholze G. He teaches strategy in Harvard. And so he says, look, at the top end, you've got willingness to pay. He calls it a, he calls it a strategy stick. So at the top end, you've got willingness to pay and you've got that gap between what people are prepared to pay and your cost. And that's the value. And he said at the opposite end, you've got willingness to sell, which is suppliers are selling you product and services and your employees are selling you themselves. And so he, so he said, look, you know, if you're in hospitality, if you can keep and retain great people, then you can deliver great service to your customers. And then the whole thing becomes a virtuous circle. And so I think you're coming at the same idea from a from an HR perspective, whereas he's coming at as a, he thinks so often businesses look at strategy and then look at certainly the human element of execution as a separate thing altogether. And he said, look, in, in people-based businesses, they are intrinsically linked and can't be split. I completely agree. Like when you really think about the job of your CHRO or VP people or whatever it is, right? Like if you adopt this kind of mindset, then they are now responsible for what, at least 60% of your budget, at least optimizing it plus all of the HR budget on top of that, right? So they are ostensibly one of the biggest budget holders in your company. And if you're not giving them the same kind of commercial expectations and strategic expectations as you would your revenue leader, who may be responsible for bringing in that same amount of revenue as spend, 
But I, I very often see CEOs spending a kind of almost disproportionate amount of time focusing on our revenue leaders or our engineering leaders and like their, their capacity to bring in $2 million a year or $20 million or however much it is, and not that much on HR leaders' ability to like expand and look after the ROI of the $2 million spend you're making annually. Is that just because historically there haven't been enough people who've thought like that? Is it what stops people leaders stepping into this and owning it? No, I think it's kind of a, a symbiotic toxicity that exists in HR, as horrible as that sounds, right? Like a lot of businesses don't give HR leaders the level of insight and strategic ownership that they deserve. Sometimes the budget, sometimes their kind of ownership in terms of how they are spoken to and about to the organization. And then on the same time, I think a lot of people leaders kind of fail to be numbers people. They just aren't interested. They don't engage in in the advisory work I do, like one of the things that kind of almost constantly surprises me, maybe it shouldn't anymore, is how frequently I meet with really, really senior people leaders and sometimes ops leaders too, who if I ask basic questions about the business, like what's your EBITDA? It's like, oh, I'd have to ask finance. I'm not sure. It's like, if you are on the board, <laughs> you should know your company's performance like the back of your hand. You should know all the throughputs about how your people are, are, are affecting that ultimately. And I don't, I don't know if that's lack of willingness or lack of permission or a mix of both. It's hard to say. Well, I had a similar conversation with somebody recently and the CEO was saying that I said, I'm surprised that the individual, I thought, bored through some of the sessions we were doing on strategy. And he said, oh yeah, but that's because she doesn't really understand the business. Not only was she not engaged, but it was okay to not be engaged. And so that's symbiotic toxicity. It's yeah. It's like you would never say, if we weren't talking about product development or writing code, I mean, if, if we were talking about sales and the head of engineering just looked bored, be like, you know, why aren't you participating in this meeting? You know, it's, you, it would be yeah. inexcusable. It's funny. It's, I don't, yeah, I, I don't, can't really put my finger on it. I think traditionally there's like so much talk in, so in my, in, my, in my book, I say that like HR does have two roles. You have this role of people operations, which is genuinely like building these products, thinking things in output metrics, being very product-centric around like you, how, how who you are in the marketplace of culture sets you apart strategically as a business, right? And like thinking about how to service that. And then the other part of your job is the stuff that HR leaders really are very good at talking about. And that's like human operations is what I call it. It's a terrible name in retrospect, but here we are. The... Human operations work is like the qualitative work that like no AI or product can replace. It's sitting with people, talking to them when they're having difficult times, advising managers on, you know, how to give hard feedback when they're struggling. And that work always exists, right? This kind of coaching, mentoring, advising role. I just think that over the last couple of years has been this like almost disproportionate focus for HR leaders to be really good at that, at the kind of sacrifice or detriment of all of the other work that I actually think is technically the output of all of this insight, right? If you're getting all this amazing qualitative information about how people are feeling and what people are working on and what's happening in your business, you should be using that to actually build things that make sense for your company. And I find that that just sometimes doesn't happen. If you haven't got the two pieces, you have no reason to carry on doing it because you're just doing it because it's nice right? It's like, it's, you know, like, and if you're not doing it because it actually makes a difference to the business's performance, then stop doing it. But think about the amount of times that, I mean, I'm sure you've been in businesses giving advice where the HR lead has been like, oh, we launched this massive new benefits program and there's this new portal you log into and it took us two years to ship. 
no one really uses it. No one really likes it. It doesn't seem to have made anyone happier. And no one in the team turns around and says like, well, what the flip did we spend all that money on? Like, it doesn't really happen. I have to say, I have had other clients. Yes, I have that. But I have other clients where they've said, we, you know, they, one of the tools we use is a tool called Friday Pulse, which is sort of, you know, asks everyone on a Friday, how happy were you at work today? Because it's a question to which people know the answer. Mm. And they've got some basis. They can show in, Nick and his team can show in the data that happier teams are more productive. And so there is a definite ROI. And if you have, as a leadership team, you have a philosophy that happier people, uh, we want to build a high-performing organization based on high-performing teams. Well, for the first time, yeah, certainly a number of the HR leaders have, who've adopted this, they, there's, you know, there might be somebody in the organization who is not their favorite person, you know, like whenever they've got some, you know, like they're rubbish at doing any appraisals or don't want to spend any time doing, you know, things. And it's like, you know, I'm, she, she said, oh, I've, I, for the first time ever, this person who's always, I am amazing, don't tell me what to do. All of a sudden, there's some empirical data that says, actually, the people in your part of the organization are not happy. And the people in your part of the organization are not as productive as they are elsewhere in our business. Okay, now I'm on the front foot. Instead of just getting savaged for wasting time, what are you going to do about it? And they're on the front foot. And just having that data is just, you know, or the churn and your regrettable churn you know, or your rubbish onboarding, just having data and being able to say to people, what are our expectations? Why are you not as good as the best part of our business? Without the data, you can't do anything. Yeah. I think it's also calibrating on like actual management responsibilities, right? Like, and I don't mean like admin because I actually hate things like performance appraisals, having to fill in forms and stuff like that. I think it's kind of a waste of time most of the time. But like, I think if you're using it to calibrate something, super valuable. But if you're telling everyone in your team, Make sure you have a sit-down conversation that takes this exact structure and we're going to put everything into a PDF and no one ever looks at it ever again. Then that's a waste of time. You know, I do think that HR teams are, and this is part of not being particularly product-minded sometimes, rather than be incentive-based, they are kind of punishment-based. And I think that doesn't work either, right? Like an example that I give sometimes when I do uh, talks about the book and, and, and what I what I work on one of the examples I give is like holiday bookings, right? So holiday is one of those annoying things, super administrative. Everyone complains about it. Oh no, my team want to take holiday in one day's notice and they've already booked their plane tickets. What am I going to do? Or like three people in my team want to take time off at the same time and go on a road trip together. Or, you know, they've all got family appointments, school holidays. So it's this constant kind of annoying, nagging problem that no one ever really knows what to do with. Traditional HR teams will do this really frustrating thing, in my opinion, which is say, if you don't take holiday with two months notice, you're going to get told it's a no and you get declined. And if you do it twice, you'll get fired, right? It's like insane. But, you know, my team did some research into why, what was going on. So we, we did user research. We sat with managers. We looked at teams where holidays were being booked last minute or holidays were having over being duplicated. And we started asking some questions. We had some like hypotheses about what was going on. And what came out of the research was that kind of three things were happening. One is that people hated logging into the HR system. They hated going out of whatever they were doing in Slack or whatever. Some of them didn't even remember what the system was they needed to log on to. So they had to have back and forth discussions with somebody to figure it out. And then they would go into the system, log in and book the holiday. And very often what would actually happen is they'd already kind of softly had it approved in Slack by the manager, but then they logged in to get it formally approved. And then that's when the manager realized like, oh, these things are happening at once, right? So that was the first problem. The second problem is that people honestly just weren't thinking about holiday until Ryanair started sending them emails saying you could go to Lisbon for £12. 
And the third thing is people just felt like there was no reason to book ahead of time. They weren't going to get any, like holidays weren't materially more expensive or cheaper when you're thinking about the two months notice that they had. So there's no real incentive for them to book things ahead of time and tell us about it, right? They were just genuinely booking last minute. So we did three things. We set up a um, Slack integration so that people could just forward slash holiday and book holiday on Slack and not have to think about it. We started sending newsletters out randomly in Q1 during January saying, wow, Lisbon's really cheap to go to. You should all go on holiday to Lisbon. And the third thing we did was we said, if you book two weeks holiday and you take that two weeks holiday with more than four months notice, we will give you a free night's accommodation wherever you want to go up to a certain value, right? So all of a sudden people were like easily able to book. They were reminded to book if they were thinking about going somewhere and they were incentivized to do it. And then lo and behold, now we don't have people booking holiday at the same time anymore. Well, not as much, right? The problem is pretty much eradicated. But And nobody had to have that to- horrible customer experience of me coming in being like, oh, you shouldn't have booked your holiday at the same time as your... It's just, that's ugly. I think those people, they should really have been traffic wardens, but they're in HR because they don't like being outside during the day. There's something about that. I get joy out of catching people doing things wrong versus helping them do the right thing. What is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Yeah, I think on this theme, probably I wish I would have known earlier that it was how valuable it is to be like a numbers person to really understand like the details of what's happening in in the business. I think for a long time, I allowed to kind of convince myself that being really good at anecdote was going to be enough. You know, the Peter principle, right? Like the highest, you you get promoted to your highest point of uh, incompetence. I actually think the same thing exists with like data literacy. You get that promoted to the highest level that your gut is good at. And then you just start failing, right? And some people are lucky. They have incredible intuition and great at, you know, putting anecdotes together and not being numbers people and somehow manage to be, you know, VPs and CEOs. But that's rare. I think the majority of people get promoted until they can't bring the complexity together anymore. And I think that I kind of reached that point and I made the decision like I need to be a numbers person. I need to get this. And I wish I would have done that earlier in my career. I think it would have saved me a lot of unnecessary exposition and just like discussion where I could have just had the facts. Very good. That's fascinating. But again, that's you're a good fit in your own organization because that's uh, personal-led growth. You've worked out, you've got it. But so many people just seem to lack any self-awareness or curiosity. Yeah, maybe they're not incentivized to have... I think people innately have self-awareness and curiosity. I'm yet to meet someone that's just a complete like, bonehead about wanting to know anything. People are surprisingly regularly shut down by their company when they try to ask questions. <laughs> you agree to disagree? What's interesting is I'm always amazed. We often do this uh, exercise where we create an alias for the CEO's email and we call it stupid rules at company X. And we say, I might do a session with the organization and I'll say, look, what stupid rules have we put in place to stop you doing what you think is the right thing to do? And then people just, they're off. We had 90 managers from one of our clients together for a day recently. And we got loads and loads and loads and loads and loads. And, you know, just some of them were people related. Some of them were revenue related. Some of them were, you know, stopping us hiring people. Some of them were stopping us billing. And of course, nobody had ever written any of these rules down. People just thought they were true. And so, you know, you'd say, somebody would say something and everyone would go, that's not a rule. And they go, oh, it is. The CEOs, they go, no, not anymore. It's not. Change that. Move on. What's next? And so then you just create that alias. So when somebody new starts and they ask a question, instead of somebody going, I don't know, and then they never know the answer, you just email stupid rules at and we get to tap into expertise that new people bring, which is that sort of outside in thinking. So you don't get stuck. Yeah. We actually have a, 
a channel at whereby on Slack called Ask Anything. And it's basically like, you can ask any question. There's nothing stupid that you can ask. And sometimes the questions are like, where do I find this on Notion? And sometimes the questions are like, hey, why do we do monthly billing in this way? And then you, you, and you'll have like a bunch of people trying to like explain it or give you the background, the history. And, you know, sometimes the questions that I read on there aren't actually relevant. Like it's something I already know or nothing really changes, but actually quite regularly, really interesting discussions will come out of it. Either the sharing of information that makes people better at their job, which I think is really valuable, or the identification of something that just doesn't actually really make a lot of sense, but it's historical and we just haven't got around to fixing it. Right. Even though they don't care. Because they know that they know how it works. People just start getting, they start to justify why it has to stay the same. I, I was actually talking with somebody this morning and in his lifetime in the organization, they've changed the entire leadership team. But he feels as though it's a bit like Trigger's broom. You know, it's had several heads and several shafts. And so there's a culture that is still in their leadership team. So that was the thing we were talking about today. This culture that exists in their leadership team that sort of has persisted even though all the people have changed. Because as, as one person comes in, they learn these unwritten rules and nobody challenges them. So it's one of the things we're planning to look at when we get together in October. Jesse, what other books should people read other than yours? Well, I'm, I'm actually the worst person doing book PR. I mean, you, you've got the nice like LinkedIn banner with the available now. I love that. I feel like I need to get on that train. I've just, I've bashfully uploaded a picture of my book as my LinkedIn banner. It's like, it's the best I can do. My PR team at Kogan Page must think I'm a crazy person. But anyway... Other book recommendations. I've got three. One of them is just a fun read, but it's really interesting. It's called Severance by an author called Ling Ma. It's a fiction book, but it's it's kind of about doing the same behaviors over and over again because it's comfortable and nostalgic. It's kind of an interesting philosophical question. Really nice book. Weirdly written before COVID pandemic, but very, it's like she read the future. That's all the hint I'm going to give you. And then the next two books are workbooks. One of them is called Customer Centricity by Peter Fader. He's a professor at Wharton lovely short little book about how the customer isn't always right, but the right customers are really nice. And then the final book is 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. It's a book about how you only have 4,000 weeks to live. It's great. You've read it and loved it. It's fab. It's fab. And we've got two children, nine and seven. And so our thing at the moment, I suppose, is a condensed version, 18 summers, given that you spend 90 odd percent of your time with your children until they're 18. And then after that, they might deign to talk to you again. And so same concept, don't waste your time. Yeah. I think it, it somehow that book managed to make me feel both like existential terror and like a huge wave of relief. I don't know how that's possible, but I felt both those two things at the same time. That must be because you haven't wasted all of your life so far. I've always, not all of it, definitely some of it though. Some weekends after a few wines have been very wasted. Thank you for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.